Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week we meet the veteran Canadian news anchor Lisa Laflamme. The news cycle has never been more rapid, I would say, than it is these last many years. It just feels like you turn around and there's another major story to tackle. And it's been great, though. Obviously, I feel very privileged in this role that I have. Plus a review of Zola, the new film based on a viral Twitter thread about two strippers on a road trip gone wrong. I think the best way to describe it is a kind of Wizard of Oz style epic journey where things start off very kind of gently and you know we think that everything's going to be exciting and there's an opportunity lying at the end of the yellow brick road and then slowly as the story unfolds things get more dark more twisted all that and much much more over the next hour here on the curator with me Marcus Hippie we begin today's show with a roundup of all the things we know now that we didn't know seven days ago. Here is Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller with this week's What We Learned. We learned this week that predicting the future is probably best left to the professionals with their crystal balls, runic stones, coffee grains, goats entrails and what have you. It is not a lark for the enthusiastic amateur. The Taliban is not the North Vietnamese army. They're not, they're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. It is not at all comfortable. We learned that the five weeks since US President Joe Biden made that claim has been a long time in Afghan politics. After 20 years of attritional war, the Taliban rolled Afghanistan up in a matter of days. President Biden sulked back from vacation to offer an updated assessment of the situation, from which we learned that there had been an evolution in the United States' view of Afghanistan, from budding democracy, in which America had been willing to invest decades and trillions, Two, here's a quarter, call someone who cares. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. We could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. But we learned that, while little in American politics these days is truly bipartisan, being wrong about Afghanistan most certainly is. Let us now peer back through the swirling mists of time to about a month ago when someone was positing the looming American withdrawal as a great American triumph. I started the process, all the troops are coming back home, they couldn't stop the process. 21 years is enough, don't we think? 21. We learned, however, that the astonishing shambles broadcast from Kabul this week had at least had a usefully humbling, nay calming effect on America's public discourse, as politicians and pundits on both sides of the aisle desisted from their usual inane sectarian bun-hurling about every goddamn thing to reflect somberly and maturely on what went wrong and what lessons might be constructively absorbed. Ha 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 ha, no really, what is the weather like on your planet, etc. 
We learned that the Republican Party, usually as enthusiastic about citing George Orwell's 1984 as they are unenthusiastic about reading it, had gone full Ministry of Truth. As the Taliban ambled into Kabul, the GOP removed the page from its website, which bragged of President Donald Trump's sagacity in securing the peace deal which had made this advance possible. Still, we did learn from the confected outrage of assorted Trumpists at the spectacle of the Taliban putting their feet up on the desks of Kabul's presidential palace that the GOP seems to have had a rethink about the virtue of unruly rabbles of obdurate malcontents storming the bastions of elected power. That was an extremely clever satirical reference to the events of January 6th in Washington, D.C. and the subsequent defences of that attempted putsch by Republicans, and we would not have wanted you to miss it, and so that is why we are explaining it at this time. Hmm, I see. Very clever. Back in Kabul, meanwhile, we learned from an altogether odd news conference thrown by the Taliban that Afghanistan's reinstalled rulers do have an amount in common with the conservative headbanger tendency of the nation they had outlasted. This question should be asked to those people who are uh, claiming to be promoters of freedom of speech uh, who do not allow uh, publication of all information. I can ask Facebook uh, company. Uh, This question should be asked to them. Cancel culture comes for the Taliban. Is nobody safe, etc.? But what we mostly learned this week, and very much not for the first time, is that things for the actual people of Afghanistan, always pretty rugged at the best of times, are about to become much harder. And we learned perhaps of a benchmark to aim at in terms of a response, especially from countries which find themselves party to this week's abandonment. And we learned it from Spencer Cox, Republican governor of Utah, who has featured occasionally in these monologues, generally for being annoyingly difficult to dislike. Just last week, for example, Cox shared with his social media following a letter from an enraged constituent demanding that he change his surname on the grounds that it was foul, dirty and obscene, and furthermore, possibly communist. Well, sure, why not? We missed this at the time, for which we can only apologise. But we learned this week of a much more serious correspondent from, rather than to, the governor's desk. Governor Cox wrote to President Biden, and it's worth quoting at reasonable length, as now read by our plain, big-hearted, common decency desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I recognise Utah plays no direct role in shaping US diplomatic or military policy but we have a long history of welcoming refugees from around the world and helping them start their lives in a new country. As you already know, Utah's history guides our approach to refugees. Our state was settled by refugees fleeing religious persecution 170 years ago. Their descendants have a deep understanding of the danger and pain caused by forced migration and an appreciation for the wonderful contribution of refugees in our communities. Please advise us in the coming days and weeks how we can assist. So we've learned that someone, at least, is stretching out a hand to the huddled masses yearning to breathe free and so forth. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks, Andrew. 
Staying with the story that has dominated much of the news this week, it is of course Afghanistan where the Taliban are now in control of the capital Kabul and much of the country, having made sweeping advances in recent weeks following the withdrawal of US forces. Last Sunday, the militant group took over the presidential palace, saying it will declare a new Islamic emirate of Afghanistan after President Ashraf Ghani fled the country while American and Western nations scrambled to evacuate diplomats and their citizens. On Monday, Monocle producer Emma Cyril spoke to Charlie Faulkner, a correspondent based in Kabul. Here is what she had to say about the chaotic scenes on the ground. The streets of Kabul have been absolutely sort of clogged with traffic this week. A lot of it was down to displaced people fleeing from conflict in the provinces, in other parts of the country, sort of flooding into Kabul in the hope of some sort of support. But certainly yesterday morning, the chaos on the streets was very much down to people desperately trying to get cash out of the ATMs, trying to buy different SIM cards so that if communication lines go down, they're sort of increasing their options, really, of still being connected in some way. People were sort of packing up and moving into different relatives' houses, sort of moving out of the centre because they were expecting um, some sort of Taliban attack. Um, But what actually unfolded was that by the mid-afternoon, following this crazily chaotic morning... The city sort of just fell into this very eerie quietness whereby people were at home just waiting, really, for the news of what was going to come. Watching social media, keeping an eye on the news, and then um, we obviously got the news that there was going to be a transition of power from the Afghan government to to the Taliban. These uh, live and exclusive uh, pictures here from inside the presidential palace. Uh, What you are looking at right now is Taliban fighters inside the presidential palace. Uh, This is uh, these pictures exclusive. Overnight, we've seen further chaos at the airport. Thousands of Afghans have, have fled there, desperately trying to get onto flights. There was some misinformation about Canadian flights being put on, which prompted this further influx of people. Commercial flights have actually been grounded since last night, largely because the US has prioritised evacuation flights and has taken over the runway. There was inside the airport, the the staff all fled, there was no security, there was reports of robbery and people looting the the small shops which which were in the airport. According to to friends who were there, you know, it was extremely scary. What we've seen this morning is a continuation of those kind of scenes. I mean, even at the moment, people are on the tarmac trying to get onto flights. Uh, Shots are being fired. We believe they are warning shots. Those who don't have visas or, or any capacity to get onto a flight are taking refuge in their homes and sort of sitting tightly, really. There are some people out on the streets, but they are much quieter than normal. As I say, be be, uh, accompanied by a male relative companion. There is a huge concern around girls' women's freedoms being curbed. We already are having reports from different regions around the country about girls not having the same access to education. 
In Herat, Reuters reported nine women were removed from their posts in a bank. Taliban fighters came in and forced them from their positions. So it is a very, very worrying scene at the moment. There is a huge feeling of abandonment on the ground. The way in which this withdrawal is being carried out is just appalling and people feel completely deserted. And there is, for weeks now, there has just been this complete hopelessness. And now we've got the panic and the desperation and, yeah, it, it, it's, it's pretty awful. As a foreign person in the country, I'm in a much more privileged position than Afghans and I'm very much aware of that. We have had assurances from the Taliban that foreign journalists will not be targeted and, you know, that, that is reassuring. But, you know, we just don't quite know what the reality is on the ground at the moment. And it's not just the Taliban fighters that could be a threat. You know, the, at the moment with this sort of transitional period, it increases crime and, and, and that kind of thing. And that's, that's another threat, really, of sort of thieves, robbers, looters. That is certainly another element of threat. And also people who are angry at, at internationals for this interference and abandonment, you know, that, that's also a risk that I have to be aware of. I'm not planning to leave at, at this time. The journalist Charlie Faulkner speaking to Monocle's Emma Searle for Monday's edition of The Briefing. Now many of the images and stories that are coming out of Afghanistan are not only shocking, but they are being taken by local Afghan journalists and photographers, many of whom are currently risking their lives and have been doing so for the last few months. One of them is the Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Masoud Hosseini. Born in Afghanistan, Masoud has been chief photographer at the Associated Press and a photojournalist at Agence France Press. Until last weekend, he and his his colleague, the journalist Lynn O'Donnell, were in Afghanistan covering the Taliban's takeover of the country. Fearing for their safety, they fled Kabul last Sunday, just hours before Taliban fighters entered the Afghan capital. For Tuesday's edition of The Globalist, Monaco Simonelson was joined on the line by Masood, who is now safe in the Netherlands, and he began by explaining what happened to him. Unfortunately, I experienced a really stressful week when I was in Kabul. Um, well, before that, we were, uh, me and my colleague were, were uh, covering uh, um, Herat war. And uh, uh, I saw uh, and I felt that the war was really, really uh, uh, closing to people, our life. And the government was completely disabled and already was broken and failed from inside. They couldn't uh, fight and resist with Taliban. And uh, we were um, witnessing a lot of violence, a lot of uh, horrible scenes. <clears throat> and when I get back to Kabul, I, uh, I and my colleague, we both decide to leave Afghanistan as soon as possible. So we booked a flight. And uh, uh, well, in the night before uh, our flight uh, uh, kind of take off, um, attacks started around Kabul. And uh, first, uh, unfortunately, because the government of uh, Ghani was a really unprofessional and ignorant uh, team in the palace. So and we, they never listened to any people, any community and any advice. And we were just uh, insisting them that 
um, the palace and uh, Rani needs to um, uh, uh, reorganize the team and pro uh, a kind of employ professional people, not people who are his relatives or friends or whatever. But unfortunately, they didn't listen. And uh, Taliban, before that they take over the cities, they were they won the uh, propaganda war. And myself as a personal and as, as a citizen, I tried my best to do it. But unfortunately, um, uh, when Herat and other cities uh, fall and the day, the night before that we wanted to leave, leave Afghanistan, so propaganda work uh, again started at uh, uh, around 12 a.m. And uh, then uh, 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 every news and every information which was attacking to the social media in Afghanistan was so disappointing. And uh, um, I, I could hear uh, bombing around Kabul as well that night. So um, early morning, I decided to drive to um, airport and to the, in the way there was no police at all and there was no um, government security forces or anything related to government could be seen in the street. So I, I realized that uh, Kabul already are fall is fallen and I kind of was under um, really, really stressed. When we got to the airport, airport, airport was a mess, you know, um, a lot of foreigners, a lot of people who had the ticket uh, wanted to leave and uh, it was a lot of uh, nerve uh, and uh, angry people around and uh, when we left and when we stamped our passport and got into the Turkish plane and uh, when we took off it was a really a hard emotional moment for me because I knew that I might not be able to uh, visit my country again and when uh, we landed in Istanbul and I checked the news unfortunately uh, I saw many many heartbroken uh, um, pictures from Kabul that Taliban uh, were inside a bubble garden, which was a place for youth to date there, to have fun there. And uh, well, unfortunately, I've, I felt that Kabul and Afghanistan now is done, is finished, is in the hand of the terrorists again. Masood, you won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for a picture of a girl crying in fear after a suicide bomber attacked. Um, a shrine in Kabul. You have spent your life documenting trauma and and disaster. How important is it still for you to record what you witness of what's going on in Afghanistan? You say you don't know when you're going to go back, but is there a chance that you will do one day? Well, um, to be honest, uh, I always loved Afghanistan and I always love Afghanistan. And um, well, uh, when I came back from Iran uh, to my own country for the first time, I fell in love with the beauty and the great uh, pictures and everything through photography. Uh, well, um, I don't know uh, uh, what will happen after this, and I don't know if I can go back to Afghanistan and take pictures or not. Well, Taliban in 90s were famous to broken the cameras, um, to to make a, a people's blind, and uh, 
they they were murdering of the photos and pictures. So I don't know what will happen. They captured Kabul. You know, those who um, explode that bomb in the uh, in that day that I took picture and I won Pulitzer uh, a prize with it. Now they uh, rule the country. We saw the the news and the pictures in the airport. It was too heartbroken. We all um, uh, worked 20 years to bring democracy, to bring justice. But unfortunately, a weak person, a completely crazy and mad person like Rani uh, destroyed everything. So I don't know if I am able to go back and take picture of my beloved Afghanistan or what, you know. I don't know, to be honest. What about the photographers and the journalists left behind, those who are cataloguing what is happening now? Um, there are real, fe- real fears for them, aren't they, that, the, that what the cameras are recording are sending pictures to the rest of the world that the Taliban simply do not want us to see? Yeah, well, uh, exactly. You know, uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, everybody else that I know, they are trying to get out the country the photographers, journalists, activists, and every other part of the democracy, actually, let's say that we had in Afghanistan. And um, whatever is coming out is what um, Taliban try to use it. Like uh, they are, uh, I mean, uh, using uh, mobile phones for propaganda, the pictures that they sent the videos that they sent on the social media is what they do. It's a engineering, like uh, um, the the picture, the video came out from the airport that the young people are trying to get into the US plane. That's a completely engineering uh, video and picture from Afghanistan after the US and the uh, President Ghani left Afghanistan. So this is what they want to show that this is the uh, chaos right now. And if you want to be uh, uh, this chaos to be controlled, then you need to um, kind of recognize our emirate. And then we need to rule in the way that we want. So then with this uh, reasons, then they will start a hard and really, really, really horrible and uh, worst dictatorship in Afghanistan, trying to kill people, trying to cut off the hands of people, trying to behead people, trying to um, beat women in the street and just saying that this is our country and we know how to rule these people. So um, unfortunately, um, uh, the other photographers and the other journalists cannot and do not uh, access to the any news. Many uh, female journalists that I know uh, are staying at home and they are really scared of uh, being punished by Taliban. And uh, uh, in, in some cities like Herat and Kandahar, uh, Taliban already uh, sent uh, a, a woman back home. Uh, I, uh, one of my last, our last uh, interview in Herat before that is falling, was a really motivated investigator, uh, investigation journalist 
she was working for Cleet and she was so motivated that she's doing her role uh, for for the country. And unfortunately, now I don't know and we don't have any information about her. And he's she is uh, out of the job. And that great and big motivation for the country is going to be waste after death, unfortunately. The Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Masid Husseini in conversation with Monocle's Emma Nelson earlier this week. Well, working alongside Masoud was Lynn O'Donnell, columnist for Foreign Policy and former Afghanistan Bureau Chief for Adjons France Press and the Associated Press. Now in the Netherlands, Lynn joined Monocle's George Godwin, who began by asking if the claims made by the Taliban that women will be invited into the workplace were signs that the militant group have changed. I think the best approach is to remember that we are dealing with the world's biggest crime gang. They use Islam as a cover and everything that they say is shrouded in vagueness. Uh, We will respect women's rights according to Islam, but by whose interpretation? Uh, What we've seen as the Taliban have advanced across Afghanistan in the last three or four months is just what they mean by uh, respect for women. Uh, Girls' schools have been closed. Uh, Women are being forced out of their jobs, back into their homes, only allowed out in the company of male relatives and in full hijab. And then we have the uh, sex slavery and ethnic cleansing dimension uh, with uh, lists of women and girls being demanded and uh, then they're being told that they're going to be married off to Taliban fighters. This is not um, Taliban light. This is uh, Taliban the way they always have been and always will be. Um, That press conference the other day, Georgina, just sent shards of, of, of fear through me. Um, It was held in the government's um, uh, information centre, media and information centre, GMIC as it's called, which was built with millions of dollars of uh, donated international funds. And the man who ran it until two weeks ago was murdered in the street by the Taliban who took responsibility for his assassination. Um, And then they sit there and and say, uh, we have changed, everything's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. This is this is a reign of terror. But we've seen interviews on uh, Afghani television where the interviewer was a woman. We've seen women being allowed to ask questions at press conferences. This is all just for show. I believe so, yes. We're not there yet. This is a transitional period. Um, there isn't even a government. They're only just starting their talks with a trio of um, Afghan political figures um, in order to form some sort of uh, interim government. The Taliban leadership know very clearly that, and from experience, that they're unable to run a country by themselves. And so they need, um, they need aid money, they need international uh, funding and support, and they need diplomatic recognition. And as long as uh, they can keep up this uh, public relations front, they may well get it. We heard yesterday from the head of the British Army, General Sir Nick Carter, say um, they've changed, they're reasonable now. I think this is um, an appalling denial of reality. And um, if we do get to the juncture where the world 
and the partners and the people who have said uh, to Afghan people, democracy is good, we'll always be with you, um, then turn around and recognise and accept um, a Taliban version of what they call Sharia, then uh, the betrayal really will have come full circle. Uh, Lynn, you're now safely out of the country. I wonder if you could tell us how you managed that. Oh, um, I booked my ticket, Georgina, um, a long time ago. I was in Herat. Well, it feels a long time ago now. So much has happened. But um, I was in Herat, uh, the western uh, city, um, a couple of weeks ago. And I was there um, to cover what seemed to be the Taliban assault. It was actually a Taliban um, incursion into uh, the western city of Herat. It's a very big, important, wealthy part of the country. I spent time on the front lines with uh, a warlord called Ishmael Khan, who's since given up. Um, And he was working at the time with his militia alongside uh, armed soldiers of the uh, National Security Directive, um, Afghanistan's who do, how do we know, former, perhaps, um, Secret Service. And um, I watched uh, them really losing. And I thought I tried to get out after two days. My plan had been 48 hours. I was there for five days because the Taliban were taking the roads to the airport. The airport was closing. It was very difficult. And I decided then that as I was watching the reality of Herat fall, um, that Herat uh, was a, a big step towards Kabul and that it was time to make arrangements to leave. And I, I can't tell you how lucky I was in my timing because, yes, the flight that I took out uh, with my friend and colleague Masoud Hosseini, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, photographer from Afghanistan who I've been working with for a decade, uh, it was the last commercial flight wheels up on Sunday morning. And I understand that you were also told that you would make a, a very valuable uh, either hostage or, or victim of some sort. Well, uh, yes, that happened. Um, we were uh, essentially chased through a part of Afghanistan called Charkint. Um, the governor of that district at the time was a woman and we went down there to report on her. She's just this heroic, fantastic personality leading militias um, to ensure that the district didn't fall to the Taliban, who already had control then of, of villages inside the district. And um, at, uh, in the evening, uh, we decided that we would stay overnight at her invitation. Her name's Salima Mazari. Um, we decided we'd stay the night and... Um, Um, At about nine o'clock, calls came in that the Taliban had moved out of the villages that they were controlling and were coming for the district centre. So we had a fairly timely escape um, in the dark, led by the stars across um, wheat fields um, for where we walked for about an hour, an hour and a half and found ourselves in a teeny village in the middle of nowhere really um, and stayed the night there to be safe and I had thought naively that the target of this um, attack was the governor but I was told later that um, the chatter that the Ministry of Information um, people had been picking up was that I was the target because I would have been um, a fabulous um, uh, valuable uh, uh, what would you say prize I guess uh, a blonde fairly high profile foreign and war correspondent uh, war booty indeed so yes I did um, have an escape and I've since um, 
uh, been in touch with people I know who have the Taliban leaders on speed dial and asked for a um, an interview with Mullah Baradar and been told, Lynn, um, it's, it, they don't like you, they don't like what you've been writing and they won't be talking to you and you're very lucky that you're not in the country anymore. Uh, Masood also um, has been a very high profile target over the years. Every time I sat in the passenger car of his I sat passenger seat of his car the past three months we've been working. Um, I've had to look at bullet holes um, because his car was shot up in an ambush inside Kabul a couple of years ago. So I do think, um, I don't think of myself at all as important, um, but it seems that um, I would have been useful. Um, Masood is important and um, an important voice of Afghanistan and I think really Georgina we are very lucky to have left the the country when we did. The journalist Lynn O'Donnell speaking to Monocle's Georgina Godwin for Thursday's edition of The Globalist. Still to come here on The Curator, we meet the veteran Canadian news anchor Lisa Laflamme. We review a new film based on a viral Twitter thread about two strippers on a road trip gone wrong through Florida. And we head to Uruguay for a tall story. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippi. Next, we head to Canada, where in a few weeks' time, the news anchor Lisa Laflamme will mark a decade since she became the first woman to become the full-time host of a nightly national news broadcast. CTV National News with Lisa Laflamme is the most watched national news broadcast in Canada, and Laflamme has covered a huge range of stories throughout her career, from the war in Afghanistan to the Olympic Games and to royal weddings. Monaco's bureau Chief in Toronto, Thomas Lewis, spoke to her recently on how the role of the national news anchor has changed during her long career. Tonight, the climate catastrophe happening in real time. A blistering new assessment about the state of the planet. Unequivocal and irreversible. Human activities are making extreme weather events more frequent and severe. Humanity at a crossroad. Left behind as the world. My name is Lisa Laflamme, and I am the chief anchor and senior editor of CTV National News, based in Toronto. CTV National News with Lisa Laflamme. Good evening. We begin with breaking news tonight out of China, where it's already Tuesday morning. A verdict has just been handed down 
for a Canadian facing the death penalty. Robert Schellenberg is one of several high-profile cases. Of course, there are also the two Michaels straining the already frayed relationship between Ottawa and Beijing. Well, I've been uh, a journalist for 34 years, and I started in radio and eventually into television. And for 20 years, I was sort of a national affairs correspondent in Canada and a, and a foreign uh, correspondent from, you know, covering war zones for many years and uh, everything from war zones to royal weddings, actually. And then 10 years ago, this Labor Day, it will be 10 years that I uh, assumed the role as the chief anchor. And I took over from a man who'd been in the job for over 40 years. So it was quite an overwhelming change. Another entry in the history on COVID tonight. Canada is now officially welcoming fully vaccinated Americans in for non-essential visits for the first time since March 2020. The move, though, coincides with the sharp climb in COVID cases in the U.S., once again averaging more than 111,000 daily new infections. And look at Houston again, overflow tents to accommodate inundated hospitals. CTV's Vanessa Lee on the reopening reality. So had loved my reporting life. So this has been a perfect hybrid job really for me because I'm still on the road. Obviously, the pandemic has changed everything. But um, really, as an anchor, I'm still doing my reporting. We take the show on the road for every major story. And uh, so it's been a it's been a fascinating treadmill to be on, shall we say, because the news cycle has never been more rapid, I would say, than it is these last many years. It just feels like you turn around and there's another major story to tackle. And it's been great, though. Obviously, I feel very privileged in this role that I have. And do you describe, Lisa, this melding of your reporting work and the work of presenting the news? How important is that to you, that you are still effectively a reporter at heart, as well as being the, the figure behind the news desk? Well, they're so intertwined, I, I couldn't even separate one from the other. And that is the, the key role of a national anchor, certainly on a conventional newscast. You are completely hands-on and the senior editor of the show also. And everything that comes out of my mouth, I have had a hand in the writing of it. And that also is a result of my many years as a reporter. I know what I mean. I, I know how I can best express something. And the viewer sees the very last thing I do in the day, which is present the newscast. But all the work that goes into it all day long from first thing in the morning is the part nobody sees, <laughs> sort of the dissecting of the news stories and the putting it in context and then presenting it. I find that I love this job also because I can tackle sort of the 12 top stories of the day. I mean, on average, we put about 20 stories in the show. And, you know, it's just you're always trying to put it in context, help the viewer, put yourself in the mind of the viewer. How are they interpreting this? How can we make it more digestible? Because these issues are so complex. And in television news, you really have to learn how to write tight 
we don't have the luxury of uh, you know a thousand word columns or articles. So it's a, a totally different skill actually, because I was so mobile for so long, it was obvious in the very beginning that I wasn't going to be very satisfied to just be covering something from afar. So from day one, as I said before, we take the show on the road and we can do that now with the technology with, I would say, four people. We can do a whole newscast from anywhere. We've, I've done it from Erbil, Iraq. I mean, it's unbelievable. Now we were only two people. So I think that for me personally, I've had this great support from my bosses that say, yes, this story is important enough that the whole show should come out of there. It isn't just optics. It allows me to actually be reporting on something. And if the viewer turns on the newscast at 11 o'clock at night and sees that we're, you know, somewhere, it obviously is a message. This story is hugely important, so important that we want to give more of the show to its um, focus. And um, so I think that's just, for me, how I've been able to pull this off for, for 10 years, because I still have the right and the ability to travel. And if I didn't, that, I think it would be more difficult. Veteran news anchor Lisa Laflamme speaking to Monaco's bureau chief in Toronto, Thomas Lewis, for last weekend's edition of The Stack. Our next highlight comes from the latest instalment of Monocle on Culture. This week, the team reviewed the film Zola, a dark comedy based on a viral Twitter thread about two strippers on a road trip gone wrong through Florida. In this clip, the show's host Robert Bound is joined by the film critics Simran Hans and Casper Salmon. Hey. Last month, I went dancing at this cute spot in Florida where my roommate's girl made like five Gs a night. Because of my we just met yesterday and you already trying to take hoe trips together? Be ready by two. Hi, bitch! You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. And joining me today to review Zola are the film critics Simran Hans and Casper Salmon. Um, welcome both to the programme. Simran, we're going to start with you. Um, we've alluded to what the storyline entails, but can you can you fill us in a bit without giving away too many spoilers on just what sort of a journey we're taken on in Zola? Yeah, I think the best way to describe it is a kind of Wizard of Oz style sort of epic journey where things start off very kind of gently and you know we think that everything's going to be exciting and there's an opportunity lying at the end of the yellow brick road which is a sort of highway to Tampa and then slowly as the story unfolds things get more dark more twisted and you sort of almost turns into a horror movie you think how is Zola going to get out of this situation but it's very arch and very funny in its tone and so it's sort of there's a sort of constant sense of threat hovering over the film, but it's not actually like a horror film. It's sort of vibrating at this kind of slightly scary frequency. And it really walks the line between sort of comedy and drama, I think. 
Yeah, that's that's a fantastic point. We'll come back to that maybe a little bit later in the program about how Janixa Bravo, the director and the cast, kind of keep it on, keep us on tenterhooks as an audience and keep the film kind of on that interesting uh, uh, sort of fulcrum between being really quite dark and sinister and very funny at the same time. But Casper, as Simon says, they go on an amazing sketchy ride. What are the two characters like? Because this is... All of the roles in this are quite juicy, but the two actresses, um, lead actresses, are technicolour wonders in this, befitting the Wizard of Oz, I suppose, as Simran says. Tell us what, what, what they're like. Well, we have Taylor Page in the, I suppose, lead role, or nominally the lead role, of Zola, through the prism of whose consciousness the story is told. And then Riley Keogh, in an extraordinary performance that I think we'll need to talk about quite a lot, um, as Stephanie, the woman who ropes her into this extraordinary, heady, dangerous, quite sick trip. And they form the kind of binary, the basis for this film, the the, the two kind of polar opposites, but who are connected in in various ways. And I think they sort of are a two-headed beast, Zola being a more pragmatic, a more sober character who kind of has enough smarts to understand Stephanie, but ultimately is taken aback by how wayward she is and how deep... Uh, you know, how in deep she is in all of this mess that leads her to act the way the way that she ultimately does. And so you've got the two of them really creating this story of uh, one person leading another and then and the ways that the two of them kind of connect and help each other out or are, you know, shocked by each other or or learn from each other. It's it's a, a very kind of um the magnetic kind of attraction between them. It's kind of a journey into the world of sex work. And so that kind of sits on a spectrum from dancing and, and stripping to sort of more explicit sex work. And I think you sort of see that industry and that labour practice from these two different characters who have kind of different relationships to it. And it's really interesting how they're morals and their kind of personal boundaries and their sort of hunger for money are contrasted with each other and it's sort of not necessarily what you would expect from just looking at the two characters. Yeah I mean we see Zola being the sort of conservative element almost of this but also knowing how much things are worth in real life (laughs) and Riley Keogh's character who's kind of slightly skittering off the rails who kind of seems to be obviously you know under the cosh of Coleman Domingo's character this guy that is not the roommate but turns out to be the pimp is the thing right it's an interesting dynamic that these two women kind of are wrestling with now Simran I know you you interviewed the two lead actresses Riley Keogh and Taylor Page as we say such vibrant performances how did they prepare for, for for their roles It's really interesting. So Taylor Page, she kind of came up through a TV show that was sort of centred around dance and she's a dancer. And so the scenes of her kind of on the pole and stripping are really interesting because she had to basically infiltrate a strip club in LA and sort of learn how to be a stripper because she was a professional dancer. She was saying that, you know, she's so placed in everything that she does and she needed to have a bit more of a kind of looser 
sort of sex appeal and kind of tap into something that was professionalised but not so kind of balletic. So that's kind of one of the things that she did. And yeah, she sort of had a friend of a friend who got her into a strip club and she worked there for a while. And so that's how she prepared for the role. For Riley Keough, I mean, I think the, the sort of the key thing to praise her for is her total embrace of this character <laughs> who essentially is kind of in a sort of verbal blackface. Um, so she is a a young, trendy white woman who speaks like she's black and sort of, you know, we we could call it cultural appropriation, but it's sort of way more sort of far than that, if that makes sense. Like cultural appropriation doesn't even really begin to cover it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And Riley Keough has sort of, and Taylor Page, both of them have described this character as being in a kind of blackface, but it's so satirical and over the top. And of course, the film was directed and co-written by a black woman. So that's the authorship that's kind of coming through. Um, and yeah, Ryder Keogh had a dialect coach and she was sort of trying to ground the character in sort of a very real kind of young woman who had just absorbed so much black culture that she was speaking in this way. You know, like it's very earnest. It's not her kind of trying to do satire she's sort of playing it straight and because she goes so hard with it that's why it works the film critics simran hans and kasper Simmons speaking to robert bound for this week's episode of monocle on culture You are with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24. For the latest edition of Tall Stories, we are in Uruguay to look at how the relatively young country has developed a speciality with the rather old world craft of stained glass window making. Craning her neck to admire a few of those surprising pieces of art is Monocle's Lucinda Elliott. Stained glass is often directly associated with medieval churches, vast Catholic cathedrals and centuries-old panels depicting biblical kings and prophets. But in Uruguay, a country that only turns 200 years old in 2025, there's a surprising amount of coloured glass in public buildings and private homes. Brought over by Italian migrants in 1900, it is only in very recent years that the windows have reached the point of restoration the first generation from Italy, having artfully cared for them right through to the 1960s and passing on the tradition to a handful of apprentices. So who do you find to do the work in 21st century Latin America? Mauricio Yorach is one of the top stained glass restorers in Uruguay. A former banker, he started handling glass in the early 2000s, initially as an after-work hobby. But with his eye for sales, he quickly noticed there weren't nearly enough qualified craftsmen to ensure that these artworks were maintained. Today, he's currently repairing a series of major pieces, one inside the seat of Parliament, the other that decorates the staircase at the Palacio Salvo, a much-loved 1920s building designed by Italians that was briefly the tallest in South America. It's an important tourist destination for Uruguay. On Saturdays, he runs a course in the capital Montevideo, not far from the Salvo, for aspiring glassmakers. I went along one morning to watch them work. Above the sound of glass cutting, Mauricio explains that there's a real curiosity about what they're up to. Here in Uruguay, something interesting has started happening. 
When I came to this spot on Canelones Street and Wilson Ferreira, that's very open to passers-by because of all the windows, people became really curious. They'd pop in and ask questions about the glass. And they were generally surprised that there are people like me in Uruguay who are dedicated to the craft. There is this perception among Uruguayans that it's just something that is no longer done, that has died out. And that doesn't just apply to your average citizen. It's architects too. So on the one hand, it's not great that people aren't aware and don't incorporate stained glass into new buildings or a lamp or window for their homes. But the good thing is that there's definitely an opportunity to be had. If we talk more about what we are doing and the news catches on, the future is very bright. Today, we exist. On the table, students are cutting glass into different shapes, with the outlines of what they'd finally like to make drawn underneath. Marcelo is working on a sun with curved rays for a small arch window for his country house, while Veronica wants to make a Vespa moped as a gift. There are several women taking part. I ask if, as well as technical skill, you have to be physically fit to be able to install large windows, like the one in Parliament. Physically, it is a complex job. When you are at the workshop, it is fairly comfortable work. You're at a table, sitting down. But when on site, whether that's to restore broken pieces or install new ones, it gets tough. You're up high, in positions that aren't comfortable for longer periods. Sometimes you're working horizontally, lying down, and it requires strength. Arms outstretched in not positions, and we're working with very fragile objects. Glass that is extremely old and in a bad state. So there's a lot that comes with it. The glass itself is not made nationally. The market is simply too small. Much of the materials come from neighboring Argentina. But there's a real sense from Mauricio that with broader government support and greater awareness among residents, that he and his fellow glassmakers, or vitralistas, can train a new generation. In two talks, we've had 20 people and up to 30 coming to listen to us. It's inspired me to continue with the teaching side. And people love it. It's totally different to painting, sculpture or ceramics. Glass is different. And I see more people who are taking an interest. First, as a hobby, 90% of students are having some fun with it. But also those who are taking it on as a job. And they are the future glass workers. Youngsters who used to come to my workshops are now working full-time in the industry. And having seen some of the final pieces, I'll be looking forward to gazing up at their colourful kaleidoscopic work on ceilings, along staircases, and decorating Uruguay's buildings in all their national glory. Monica Lucinda Elliott there for this week's edition of Tall Stories. We are nearing the end of the show, but we have time for one more highlight, and that comes from the latest episode of Food Neighbourhoods. This week, cookbook author Zuza Zak shares a Baltic recipe. My name is Zuza Zak, and I'm the author of Amber and Rye, which is all about Baltic food. My recipe is Greta's Grand's potatoes with kefir and summer vegetables because it's perfect for this time of year and 
everyone who loves it makes it again and again. And this is my mission with this book, is trying to get people to cook more food from Eastern Europe. So what we need is some new potatoes, some dill, some rapeseed oil, tomatoes, spring onions, cucumbers, radishes, kefir and salt. And that is it. I use new potatoes for this. I cook them in boiling water until they are soft but not falling apart. And then I cool them. I halve them and then I take half the dill and I fry them in the rapeseed oil and add the half the dill to that. And then I leave them there on the frying pan while I put together the summer vegetables. So I just roughly chop all the ingredients. The tomatoes, spring onions, cucumbers and radishes all go into a bowl with the rest of the dill, loads of salt and some kefir. And I mix that all together. And then the kefir with the summer vegetables goes over the potatoes. And that's it. And the sauces at the bottom of the dish are absolutely wonderful to mop up with some bread as well. And if I could just quickly mention <laughs> where this recipe came from. This is from my Lithuanian friend Greta. And she used to have this kind of dish when she was staying at her grand's dacha on the Lithuanian coast, which uh, sadly she can't find anymore. It got bought and now they can't find this. But she has this wonderful memory of staying there and her room overlooked the vegetable patch and she would take the vegetables from the vegetable patch and make this dish. That was Zuza Zak with her recipe. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Markus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening. <laughs>